I went through all that coulda, shoulda, woulda, you know, if I'd have been there, you know, I, I went through all that um, and I had uh, some good folks helped me identify that, but been able to write the, about that, write about the loss, um, right? And in, in, in particular, in the first book, uh, the loss of uh, my mother at the hands of the Sinaloa cartel, which happened in real life, I was able to write about fictionally. So uh, that really helped. As uh, we joked before you hit record, I had, I had, I had guns and ammo plans to go into Sinaloa on a really stupid, stupid mission idea or no plan actually at all. But I, you know, had all the gear and my brother would have gone with me like, like a knucklehead he is too. And uh, I'm just happy we didn't do that, but I was able to get that out uh, in the writing of the first book, Shadow Tears. So. Welcome to another edition of the Kit Cage and please welcome back Steve Stratton, a former Green Ray and also U.S. Secret Service. Steve, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, first returning guest onto the show. Uh, I know you've been doing a lot of things in the background with your writing, and we're obviously going to be keen to talk about that. But if we could just start off um, sort of glossing over the previous episode, and if we could just talk about your your service and perhaps pick up on things that we didn't talk of in the last episode. So uh, if you wouldn't mind just briefly going over, you know, your initial military career before we hit into the Secret Service. Sure. I uh, was in basic training at Fort Ord, Monterey in Monterey, California, and um, was going to head up to Fort Lewis to be in a Ranger regiment when some guys in long hair and uh, civilian suits showed up. They took us all inside the auditorium and I'm or the uh, theater actually on on base and we all sat there as you know buzz cut dumb recruits and listened to these guys talk and I thought it was interesting so I kept raising my hand and that turned out to be the White House Communications Agency is where I ended up uh, several months later after what we call after basic training we have uh, individual training. Um, advanced individual training AIT in the US Army. And uh, so I went through, instead of infantry courses with a radio operator mindset, I went through radio repair kinds of courses uh, through Oklahoma and Georgia, then up to Washington, DC. And uh, so it was my curiosity that uh, didn't kill the cat, but <laughs> got the best of me. And I ended up on the completely opposite side of the United States. Um, in uh, not so uh, not so much of a military haircut and uh, civilian clothes, working in a, a part of uh, Georgetown, uh, a part of Washington D.C., known as Georgetown, and uh, uh, it it turned out to be amazing, uh, an amazing assignment. And going going from that assignment, obviously, because it's not a very um, kinetic sort of assignment. Um, how, how did you feel at the time doing that? Because I know uh, there's plenty of roles within the military um, that all serve a purpose, you know, all 
grease the cogs of the big machine but it's interesting taking it from the perspective of uh, of a very non-combative role how did you feel at the time you know, perhaps talk about the uh, the time period itself if there were operations going on overseas if you're feeling that you were perhaps missing out on something or was this technical side something that you really wanted to do well it's interesting i i had the technical background i tested well for it um, my fathers and uncles were all like machinist millwrights at uh, different lumber mills, but I had really taken to electronics in high school, that kind of thing. And, and so I tested very, I tested well for that, um, but hadn't considered it a career uh, until this role came out and said, this is what they want you, me for. And eventually what I found out was that I would be supporting the president and the vice president and even uh, Secretary Kissinger, that's how long ago it was, oh. <laughs> with communications. So uh, while it was not a kinetic role, you know, I wasn't jumping out of airplanes yet, that kind of thing. Um, I was on the go a lot. I was traveling uh, uh, in advance of pre presidential visits, vice president visits, uh, operating right alongside the Secret Service. So I did have a, uh, a role that was very <clears throat> fulfilling. And also challenging. Um, a funny story, when I first got to, to the unit, I had a sponsor pick me up outside of DC and, and sort of show me around. And as we came into town, he asked me if I knew what the building was. And I said, is that the Watergate? And he said, yeah, don't go there. <laughs> because it was two weeks. Actually, I got there about two weeks, a couple, couple days before Nixon resigned. And so it's like, don't go to the Watergate. You know, that's still a sore subject. <laughs> don't do that. Um, but the uh, idea of being able to support these leaders of our, our country, uh, you know, with communications was uh, thrilling, exciting. You know, my first trip out of the United States was a 19-year-old, and it was Paris, New Delhi, then Baca, Dhaka, Bangladesh. And um, so it was, it was exciting. The per diem was good <laughs> and, uh, you know, staying, not having to stay in barracks and stuff was, was a nice treat. So, so um, obviously, you know, you, you're talking about doing a lot of presidential um, work, looking after them, making sure the security is there, making sure that you know, they've got clear comms and that. So it's very much the, you're looking at the clandestine side of, of, you know, sort of U.S. government, aren't you? It is that security aspect. I don't imagine that, you know, stood you in good stead and opened doors for you. Yes, it did. I mean, it. Um, so uh, along with getting to the unit, it required getting a, a, a top secret Yankee White clearance to be able to work in and around the White House. Um, not everybody in the unit was assigned right at the White House or or nearby over um on, on uh, Bowling Air Force Base now, where it's, which is where Defense Intelligence Agency is headquartered. But um, yeah, so that getting that clearance, meeting people, uh, you know, meeting people in very high positions of of power, uh, things like that, um, set me up for the future. So after four and a half years on active duty, it was a really easy switch over. Uh, almost like a lateral transfer to become um, a part of the Secret Service in the technical security specialist. I was not a full-up agent, 
we used to joke the agents were the ones that would uh, stand in the hallway waiting to get shot while we were in the in the back rooms and checking the elevators and sweeping the rooms for bugs and doing all the other technical aspects of that security um, requirement before and during as the protectee would show up. How would you feel that that sort of aspect of service differs from uh, military? Because obviously uh, the U.S. is very unique, has incredible services to its country, such as the FBI, the CIA, and and the Secret Service, Homeland Security. These are a very lucrative places to work for you know you have to be a a certain person to be able to serve your country within these firms um Mm -hmm. how how do you feel it differs for a the person to be serving in that environment uh and and b how how does it feel because obviously you know you're in a unique perspective you've got military experience and then also this serving your country in these sort of environments how do you think it both differs for the person and you know the environment um i think it's just it's a different place in time um the mission is still the same uh maybe a bit more criticality to the mission right that that You've got to get things right um, in the Secret Service, in the presidential protective detail, and of course on the vice presidents too. It's it's considered a no-fail mission, right? Um, failure is not an option because you know that that means people are dying. So uh, you know, I felt proud to be in that. Um, a, a little awkward, like I was out of my swim lane. That I was you know, not, not good enough, but that was just sort of me and my upbringing. Um, but I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, patriotic folks on both sides of the pond, mm-hmm. right. That the, 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 the people that protect the MPs and, and your prime minister and stuff like that have the same kind of ideas about, uh, patriotism and, and serving the greater need. Right. And the neat thing was that right from the start, uh, the number one thing that was the same uh, across whatever unit I've been involved with uh, in the military and or out inside uh, the government and even in the contractor space was this unity of mission and this mindset that I'm doing something for the greater good. Um, and also that it takes a team, right? I can write stories about, you know, uh, and 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 some of my friends in the writing business, you know, write about stories like the gray man, right? Mark Greeny writes about the gray man. Um, And he's a little bit different, but like Brad Taylor writes about the task force. He has a team, you know, a lot of people and just continue that theme of team, right? That we're better as a team than, than by ourselves. Uh, We're better when we can call an A-10 or a Spectre gunship, right? Uh, We're much better, you know, than by ourselves, things like that. And so, that is that has sort of been the one constant that went through my active duty time, my National Guard time, time time in the government, and actually as a contractor was being part of a team that was doing something um, to support the the political leadership of the country and or the missions mission of the United States and the military, you know, the government, the military, that kind of thing like that. So, 
there always seems to be some sort of um, romance over the the shadowiness of uh, Secret Service and FBI and, and CIA because, well, because of the security clearances that people have to have, and you know, there's, there's certain things that they they can't talk about and the way they uh, go about their their duty protecting the president. Um, do, do you think that romantic um, affliction it helps or hinders those people doing those jobs? I think it's, um, I think that when you're in the job, you look at that, you sort of laugh and go, no, you know, traveling 300 days a year during a campaign season, right? With all the campaign stops, there's nothing romantic about that. You're one of, you know, four teams on a shift work, you know, working the president, flying ahead to try and get ahead of the president to be there when he arrives so you can take over the shift, so to speak, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, yeah, you know, seeing the agents around the president, yeah, it, it may seem uh, sexy and, uh, you know, high speed, low drag and Teflon coated. <laughs> but but the reality is, right, you've got to be able to, like many other places in the military, you've got to be able to grind. You've got to be able to put your head down and go, OK, I got to suit up, do my job today and and be there, be present, very present when you're in, in a protective mode, right, in a personal protection mode. So um, the uh, <laughs> that idea that romantic idea is great for books and movies, but the reality is that the the agents on the protective details are as hardworking as any other agent or specialist in the Secret Service. And a lot of people don't realize, but the, the Secret Service mission has changed over the years, right? There used to be, in my time, we had tape recorders and, and things that, that watched you dial your phone, but uh, the tech was way different and uh credit cards you know we were worried about uh fake money right mm -hmm. yeah and now they've got credit cards they're electronic crime um and they've got all kinds of specialists in the secret service like they do the bureau who are behind the scenes working every day you know eight ten twelve hours a day especially if you're on an investigation grinding through that to um bring somebody who's broken a lot of justice and or protect the United States, right? And as you, as you know, they, I mean, you mentioned them. I mean, there are agents, all the different agencies in the DHS, um, you know, uh, doing the same kind of things, maybe not out in front and seen in the press as much, but doing the hard work of, of securing the nation. So, Obviously, the, the stress is you know, ever present doing a, doing a job like that uh, and completely different to the stress environment of, you know, being overseas in a kinetic environment in, in the military. Um, how would you describe the, the stress levels um, that were self-imposed and perhaps role-imposed on you during this time? Oh, yeah, that, that idea of, of no fail, right, uh, can weigh pretty heavily. Also, um, it is a, a protective detail is trying to do things um, proactively, right? Like going out and checking all known <laughs> nutcases in the area and 
making sure that they're not going to be a threat. Uh, you know, um, there are other measures that are taken proactively, like my team, I would go out with EOD folks and, and sweep areas and make sure they're clear and mark them and then have them secured maybe by local police. So we knew that that area was secure from IEDs, things like that. So you're doing things proactively, but when, we, when you're with the protectee, it's, it's all defense, right? Um, you'll see, you'll see some, you'll always see the agents there. They're, they know where the protectee is and the, 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 the special agent in charge is usually with the protectee and the rest of the team is looking outward for threats. Right. Um, and so being on the defense, you know, versus, versus that power and ability to adapt, you have when on offense, it's, it's different because, uh, on defense, you still have to be able to identify and adapt to things going on. Um, but it's, it always, for me, seems easier when I'm on the offensive side. I'm making the decisions. I'm pushing the, uh, my adversary in ways that I want to get behaviors I want out of them, right? It, it, you know, that, so there's a difference there that um, uh, oftentimes I, I think military people, you know, we sort of downplay it. But like if you're at a FOB or a base or you're even just a 12-man team, you know, if you've got security and you're, you're, you've got to pay attention, uh, but it's different than being when you're on offense has a different feeling. So. When it comes to, um, you know, secret service, having certain levels of security clearance, as we've seen in the press recently, we, we find whistleblowers that, uh, pertain to, leaking classified documents or, you know, talking about certain things that they've witnessed. How are those people perceived either from what you witnessed during your time or, you know, sitting there now, how do you think those people are, are perceived to perhaps people that they worked with that took the same oath? Yeah, I think there's a, a often a pariah a mentality, right? That, you know, you, you swore to defend and et cetera, et cetera. And now you're blowing the whistle on something. Um, and I think it, I think it's like any other part of society. Yeah. The secret service is not a bunch of superhumans. Uh, I remember, I, I mean, I experienced, you know, people that came from school teacher backgrounds, accountants, historians, you know, they, it was just a wide range of people. Um, and, and at the time I was in, it was not so, um, uh, if there was a militarized, more militarized unit, it might be the counter assault team, but not the, the agents, the body of agents as a whole. Um, and uh, so I would expect, and uh, I, I never witnessed a, a whistleblower event in my time, but I would expect that it would be some of the reactions, the same kind of reactions you would have um, you know, from a normal populace um, or like folks in a commercial company. But so you're going to have your haters and your doubters and then some people that, yeah, that really was a problem that need to be brought out. And uh, being a being a whistleblower, I think. Right or wrong, it takes a lot of courage to stand up and do that and say, no, this is wrong. I need to do something about this. Right. Uh, it's so easy. Right. Just people do not often want to find out the truth because the truth 
might change the perception of themselves in the world or their value and or change the status quo. And, you know, when the status quo changes, sometimes uh, that, that ability for people to adapt, we see it in the military, we train it in the military, but like in the civilian world and other things, not, it's not there, it's not a common trait. And so uh, from my experience in the civilian world, and so um, that can lead to a lot of, of fear, loath loathing and doubt, and, you know, about whistleblowers. Because um, obviously being in the news recently was the um, meeting over UAPs and somebody whistleblowing about that. And that's exactly what you're saying. Having that information out there could change the status quo, could bring into question religion, cultures, everything. Um, obviously, coming from that world, just to throwing a curveball out there and let, let's have a conversation on it because it's in current use. Um, your thoughts on UAPs being from, you know, from behind the curtain, almost, so to speak. What, <laughs> well, I'm what's also, your views? I'm also from uh, California. I was born in California. So a lot of people think I'm, you know, full of fruits and nuts. But uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, I'm a firm believer in the possibility of um you know, until it's like proven not, um, they're, they're, you know, I, I, I'm not done psychedelics, so I don't think I've worked my brain too much, but uh, other than landing on my head in parachute drops that um, I, I'm just a believer in, you know, like, I don't believe that we're alone in the universe. I don't, you know, that the odds are just so way against it, you know, and I believe there can be other forms of life, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I, I'm interested in it all. I don't know if it's true or not true. Um, I will say, though, that oftentimes, you know, we do this in the military and certainly in intelligence circles. We tend to uh, classify things we don't know anything about, right? And then overclassify them. So then that, that when they finally come out, that gives them more mystique because, right, this was top secret SCI. It was, you know, it was... Uh, uh, a or B in UK parlance or something like that. So um, that can just give it more weight than it might really have just because we classified or overclassified what we were doing. But I am a, I'm a, uh, I used to love watching the X-Files. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a, I, I believe it's possible. Um, you know, for me, it has yet to be proven one way or another. Um, and um, so we'll see. I think uh, there's supposed to be some more come out and, yeah. and, you know, I, I listen to everything with an open mindset. I don't often watch ancient, ancient aliens on TV, but it is fun occasionally to take a look. So. One of the things that I always take into consideration is the, the technology that, you know, we, we are developing ourselves um, for, for the military. If you take the uh, F-117, um, stealth aircraft for example and how many years previously that was in development and flying to when it was actually released to the public to what it was so if you imagine somebody seeing that triangular shaped aircraft flying through the sky or well, what's that well it's classified um you know skunk works as you know not talking about it or whatever so then again no, because it flew, it, it flew at area 51 exactly as part of its prototyping so people are seeing 
aurora and different things like that. And what are all these strange things going on? And well, it's leading edge technology testing. Yeah. So, so sometimes having that um, classified status just lends the mind to wonder for <laughs> civilians and thinking, well, what is that? And then suddenly uh, another little thought, you know, from the, the secret service aspect, disinformation false information being put out there for for certain things um you know if the public believe it's a ufo and somebody comes out and says well yes it was a ufo from a a service for you know, for the government spreading disinformation do, would do you think that's a possibility is that something that you've witnessed perhaps not on the the same subject of uaps but other political stances or or things that have been questioned by the public uh, when it comes to disinformation, is that something that you believe happens or, you know, you've witnessed yourself? Disinformation, yeah. Um, oftentimes, so so nowadays we have, we call it um, MISO, Military Information Support Operations. We've got IO, Information Operations, IOW. We've got all these terms. And I still keep up with the, on the technology side, I still keep up with the requests where the Air Force and other agencies are looking for, you know, new ideas. Not everything comes through our defense, um, you know, advanced research projects agency, DARPA. Not everything comes through there. Uh, there are, most people don't know it, but here in America, there's also a IARPA, which is an intelligence community advanced research pro uh, projects agency. And they're they're out in the public. It's not it's not well publicized, but they they're always looking at new technologies and new new modes of modes of operations, things like that. Uh, but just the Air Force, uh, you can go on to a site called called samsam.gov and see where the Air Force is doing these commercial calls. They call it for technology, and and the idea of being able to operate in that sphere and adjust what potential adversaries are thinking about us through disinformation, it goes both ways. I mean, we hear about the, you know, Russian interference in our, in our political system, you know, an election or two ago, things like that. And it, it, it can go a long way. I mean, you know, what's to, what's to say, you know, that somewhere in the government, somebody hasn't let the Chinese get to some plans that are not really plans kind of ideas that are incomplete or would not, you know, different things like that. And so, um, and, and those are the kind of things where my brain goes and I like to incorporate those in my books. You know, it's like, it's like, is that right? Because, um, you know, the deception, I mean, World War II, our, our pre-invasion deception, right? And, to have Patton, for example, be stomping around and looking at Calais, you know, brilliant, right? Because they've got somebody really, really that the Russian, I mean, the Germans really, really uh, held in high regard. And he's building this huge army, you know, and he's coming across the Calais. Um, so even as something is, we look back as, as complex or as simple from an information standpoint, it was more visual and other things, not of course, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, you know, different things like that. But uh, yeah, disinformation like that um, to, once again, to get our adversaries to exhibit certain behaviors or take certain steps in response is 
a huge game now. And it's like, it's, it's tough, right? When you, when you look at some things and stuff like that, I, I uh, can't talk about specifics. There are some times when I smile and go, Oh, okay. Gotcha. Thank you. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Mostly yeah. around technology with me nowadays. So. Yeah. Um, Cause obviously um, times have changed quite a bit. Um from when, from when you first said you were in the Secret Service, uh, having news 24-7 in the palm of your hand on your mobile phone and social media, that must make um, it very easy for, for that mode of disinformation to be spread to compared to how it was back then. And as you were referring to, um, the disinformation of where the Allied forces were going to uh, advance into France. Do you yeah. think... Uh, that it's become more dangerous having that information in your palm of your hand all the time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We've got, what, in the palm of our hand, we've got, you know, when when Admiral Grace Hopper was, you know, moving dials around on, on a computer that took up the whole room, you know, we've got a thousand times more processing power on our cell phone. Um, so, so, right, just like any other technology, uh, for example, in Africa, we saw countries that did not extend their landlines and, and invest in landline, uh, you know, copper wire kind of infrastructure. They just jumped ahead to cellular, right? Then you're seeing seeing folks, you know, you could see nowadays you could see a somebody's living in a in a mud hut or a tin roof shack in in South America, but they've got a cell phone. They've got access to information. And you know what? What do they know about the veracity, the integrity of that information? Is you know, especially in in different countries with their control systems over the the internet or and or, or messaging and things like that. Um, so it's a it's a, it's a boon, and there's access, and it's great for children and learning. And at the same time, it's it's also a platform for people to use it in ways that that uh maybe not uh with high integrity you know um and or in in political or, or military means to to like say affect adversaries so it's it's a very interesting place and uh i'll, I'll jump right to it in case you're going to ask the question <laughs> but ai is not going to make it easier to make yeah. to discern that information um my publisher, as a matter of fact, he uh, he actually typed some stuff into his his uh, AI that Apple has, and it came up with a it came up with a book outline that was pretty darn interesting. Except because he said, you know, use uh, or write a book that is you know with a plot that's never been told before. Well, it sort of missed on that because I've like gone see that plot. And it was pretty interesting what it wrote out. It it had a lot of holes in it that you'd actually have to do some writing, but it was it was it was pretty darn interesting. And that was just something off his Mac, right? So, you know, when a nation state wants to start start using this stuff, it's going to be all that much harder. You're going to have to the. I think the scary thing is is that people feel they have less time, so they get these sound bites and or digital sound bites and bits. And that becomes their comprehension of some event and or subject. And they're not 
taking the time to do further investigation, get other thoughts, other ideas, you know, to, to see how it vectors out. And that's the scary part that because of uh, people are so rushed that they'll just start. Uh, that's the truth because it came from a three letter company, you know, uh, you know, a news outlet or something like that. And uh, yeah, tough. Thinking of your, your time while you were in the, in the service, what was your most enjoyable period while you were there? And what was the most stressful? Um, and when we start talking about the stressful bit, perhaps um, are you able to to decompress and talk about what you've done or because of how secretive it is having to keep it to yourself? Does that become a burden to you? Yeah, well, I'm at the, I'm 69 years old, so luckily that like the the 20 year gap for for talking about something that was secret 20 years ago. I mean, you know, I'm I have to be careful because I don't know what's been released or not um, because it really, you know, that that idea that after 20 years you could talk about something secret is like, uh, you know, not so sure about that. Depends on the agency, but uh, um, yeah, there were. There's things that I've experienced that I've been able to talk about uh, as the funny story side of it, not not the serious side or the blooper, the blooper side, um, you know, so to speak, blooper reel. But um, uh, this is where uh, my writing, um, both for some very serious events and then uh, just other things I can't talk about. you know, I can write, I can write into my books in ways that are fictional. And I'm, of course, not giving up anything that all my books go through, um, you know, the defense review. Uh, my first book went through an agency review, a CIA review. Uh, and uh, even though I didn't work there, I'm not sure why, but I, I got a call, a couple calls and some questions. Um, so, uh, yeah, the writing the writing has been invaluable for helping me deal with that um, in, in several ways. Um, not only uh, events that happened where where people close to me uh, passed away, but also um, like in say that survivors remorse. I retired in two thousand. Um, family and. Uh, civilian job and things like that and of course three years later uh, my team you know deploys to Afghanistan Um, and uh, yeah so there were casualties and you know I went through all that could have should have would have if I'd have been there you know I I went through all that um, and I had uh, some good folks helped me identify that, but been able to write that about that, write about the loss, um, right? And in, in, in particular, in the first book, um, the loss of uh, my mother at the hands of the Sinaloa cartel, which happened in real life, I was able to write about fictionally. So um, that really helped. As uh, we joked before you hit record, yeah. I had, I had. I had guns and ammo and plans to go into Sinaloa uh, on a really stupid, stupid mission idea or no plan actually at all. But I, you know, had all the gear and my brother would have gone with me like 
like a knucklehead he is too. And uh, I'm just happy we didn't do that, but I was able to get that out uh, in the writing of the first book, Shadow Tears. So. Which is uh, sat here yeah. right next to me, quite fortuitous. Um, obviously, you know, something that's never spoken about it uh, is Survivor's Guild, which, you know, can weigh heavily on a person, especially, you know, like you're saying, um, leaving at a certain time and then events afterwards, you, you're feeling like you, you should be there. And I don't think Survivor's Guild is spoken about enough or understood enough. Um, there's, there seems to be a lot of stigma about that, especially when it comes to uh, service personnel who are in a perhaps a logistics, a technical job, uh, non-combative. They wanted to serve, but they get that guilt of not being able to go to a, a kinetic environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a you know, there's a part of me that um, wish I could have been with my friends. You know, at one point it was like, dang, I missed out on, a, you know, a combat infantryman badge. And it's like, yeah, but that's sort of like, you know, that's like a really stupid thing to be thinking about here. It's like, really? I mean, it would have been about going with my friends, my team, you know, serving in a position, uh, being there with them. But um, yeah, what what hurt what hurt the most at was was not being there. But actually, I had moved. um and um, one of my teammates, after he got back uh, from his first rotation, committed suicide, and that hurt. That hurt the most uh, because I hadn't been in touch with Mike in some time, uh, you know. And uh, yeah, so I had to go through a period of figuring that out, understanding that's what was uh, bothering me, and um, you know letting letting the the fact that I wasn't there for him go but not letting him go he's actually I've got a picture of him I used one of my uniforms um this really creative crew had this um uh, idea that we could take one of our uniforms and actually they had this machine to chop your uniform up and then turn your uniform into paper and on that I have a lithograph of Mike picture of Mike and then some saying a saying and um that says the brave may not live forever but the cautious do not live at all and that's right over my head right here and then I've got some Morris code which is my sort of secret message to Mike um but that was you know that was more traumatic than 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 I thought I it I I never had any feelings of suicide but it was just that that getting into that depression, right, and um, getting angry, you know, at Mike, myself, things, you know, that kind of thing. And and so, I had some good help with that. Um, that uh, you know, let me put it in the right perspective. I didn't put it away, stuff it. I quit stuffing it away. Um, but um, so now now I can look at it and. You know, I could talk to him. I miss my brother, you know, kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, um, somehow I've done all kinds of crazy things and, you know, survived, survived in, you know, when when the, the, the odds weren't exactly in my favor. And and uh, yeah, my my friend 
you know, who I think has a beautiful life, you know, takes his own. So that was a bit of getting bit a bit of work to get over that. And um yeah, did Sorry, did you realize straight away that you you needed to reach out and, and talk about those events? Or was it somebody who approached you first and said, right, I think you're not dealing with what, what's happened very well? Well, I was uh, lucky enough. I was um, um, open to the idea of therapy. Um, and I was trying to figure out after when it went on and a divorce, I was trying to figure out who I was, where I was, what's going on, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, it wasn't, it wasn't about the job and climbing the ladder or any of that kind of stuff that, that was sort of just came natural, just, you know, work hard, put your head down, you know, you get rewarded kind of idea, but <laughs> the, uh, yeah, it was the, it was the rest of life. And, and um, so I did, I, I'm I'm open about it. I saw a therapist and and talked about, you know, some things from my childhood even that might be contributing and was just open about that. And um yeah, it was just able to start putting things in the right perspective. Um, uh, you know, that that uh opened the rest of of the world and, and living, being able to live life fully for me. Um not being captured, so to speak, by that despondency or depression um, every now and again. It was episodic. It wasn't all the time, but uh, yeah. So uh, reaching out for, I didn't think it was reaching out for help. As a matter of fact, I thought about it as personal growth, that I should not be to have a, have too much ego or be ashamed of asking for help. I've, I had mentors in the military, in the commercial side, when I was a, you know, government contractor, I've always looked for mentors and people, you know, I never think I'm the smartest guy in the room looking for help there. Why not do it in my personal life? And, uh, that worked out well. Do you, do you think having, you know, no stigma about seeking help, having that attitude of, you know, looking for a mentor, knowing about personal growth do you think all those things combined helped you like you said it was episodic to begin with to be able to nip that in the bud before it became you know catastrophic and consuming you as a life thing do you think that really helped oh absolutely yeah and and it wasn't it wasn't quick i mean it was just sort of like like they say, peeling back the onion and not not finding anything rotten inside, but just like, okay, you've had these events, right? You can you can um choose to accept it. You've had these events in your life and you did not have control. I you know, and it's an interesting thing because I often thought like, you know, you know, um like the serenity prayer says, you know, you control what you know, you, you really don't have control. So, so let those things go, you know, and just control who you are and how you react to the world kind of idea, a bit of the Stoics there. Uh, but with this understanding that, that the more I know about myself, the more I can, I can be myself and happy with myself. Right. And, and uh, believe it or not, that one of the hardest things for me is like, 
you know, when my therapist says, you got to learn to love yourself. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, no. I, I reserve that for women, not me. You know what? Well, that's weird. How about if I just like myself? And uh, yeah, so <laughs> getting to that point, you know, uh, of, of letting go of that self-hate or loathing, which again, which was, you know, episodic, not all the time. Um, but even then just freed me up for seeing more of what I like, being comfortable who I am. And, you know, that's why now as a writer, people are like, well, what happens? What do you think when there's a negative review? I'm like, I love it. It's all valuable to me. It, yeah, it may be negative and it may be because I suck at something or it could be just them, right? But it, it's just opened me up to being so much more relaxed uh, in the world and, and with other people and what they think is like what they think, so. I was, with with your writing, you know, you, you you said that you were able to take things that you've compressed over the years that you haven't been able to talk about. You put them in a um, fictional environment to almost be able to talk about them without talking about them. Events in your life, uh, like you said, almost going across the border to take on a whole cartel, just you and your brother. Uh but taking that almost that anger and what if and putting it on paper, that must be very uh, therapeutic for you. Oh, so yeah. Where, uh, where did that first come about? Uh, and obviously, where did your first sort of inspirations of, you know, your life experiences and perhaps a bit of, as we were talking about, survivor's regret come together in a, in a mixing pot to, uh, create your first novel yeah so you know it's funny um the inciting event was in 19 all the way back in 1993 in october my parents were at the top of baja california at a resort uh, where they would tow they would tow their uh, trailer down and live on the beach for like six dollars a day they loved it and um they were on the way home when they're, they're um, some drug runners who were um, uh, using too much of the product they were running, uh, crashed into them. And my mom died alone in a Mexican hospital. So that's, that's where the whole anger and I'm going to go kill a bunch of Mexicans I, idea came from, um, which thank God didn't, didn't happen because it really wasn't the Mexican people. It was the cartel I was met at. And um so that was the inciting event. And to, I, I wrote um, in, in, uh, when, in the old days, and I'm not sure if they still do this, but when they write a screenplay or they make a movie, and sometimes they've shown this about Star Wars, they do what's called a storyboard. So you have a picture and then what's the scene going to be about and a little verbiage, that kind of thing. So I did storyboards. Um, and then I did like a PowerPoint with pictures that represented the crash and this thing and that thing I was going to do and things blowing up, of course, and me and I in good time. And so I'd done that throughout my life at different periods to sort of like let go of some anger or residual things like that. And then in, in uh, what was it, 2019, uh, my wife said, why don't you just write? You're a great storyteller. Just write. I'm like, yeah, but my English sucks. You know, I was, you know, performance anxiety kind of idea. And she's like, just write it. 
And so at the same, so that allowed me to start doing things. So like, man, I cried like a baby when I wrote the scenes around Lance Bearwolf's mother getting shot and his stepfather, you know, dying in the, in the restaurant in the early scenes of the book, things like that. Uh, just for the readers, it is a revenge book. I sort of cheated <laughs> because there's, you don't have to do a lot of character reveal when somebody's got revenge on their mind. Um, so, I, but that's what the book's about. It's a revenge book. Um, but um, that was very, very cathartic in that writing no scenes. That's not what happened at all. It was a car accident, mm. technically. Um, but writing no scenes was just great at letting it out like that. And I've seen other people. Um, there are other writers communities. Um, uh, that where, um, you know, some people will do poetry, you know, about their time in Afghanistan, a short, st a short story, things like that. <clears throat> I had no idea that I would end up with a, you know, 90,000 word novel, other than that's the kind of storyteller I am, I could tell stories all night. And uh, so I just let my fingers do the walking. Um, but between that, like like with Mike taking part of my uniform and, and turning it into paper and honoring Mike, um, those are the kind of things that have been so helpful. And I didn't even spend, you know, 20 years in the GWAT. I was I was on the backside as a contractor building systems for people who were actually downrange. Um, but uh, so, yeah, there's there's opportunity there. And I think the. The one thing is to, the key is to write. You don't have to show it to anybody. You don't have to share it with your wife. Just get on a key and don't worry about the English and the sentence structure. And you don't have to tell a three-part story like a professional writer, novelist or whatever. Just, just write. And, you know, you'll see, you'll see some stuff come out and you can, you can put it in files and you can encrypt those files, zip them up, hide them, whatever you want. Keep it as confidential as you need to, uh, semi-classified and, and, and just write and get it out. And for me, it was an amazing experience. And I continue to bring some of those things up and, and you know, hopefully a bit more on the, I can get more onto the funny, goofy blooper side, right? You know how it is. No, no plan survives leaving the wire, right? <laughs> First contact. Um, so that's 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 a very positive. And and you know, if anybody ever has any, if anybody has questions or they want suggestions, please contact me. I'd be happy. I'd be happy to help because I found it therapeutic for myself. Being able to to put on paper things you experienced in the Secret Service, but you managed to turn it into to fiction as you were you were saying how difficult was that because obviously like you say your your book had to go through very uh stringent checking processes to make sure it wasn't actually re revealing any real secrets being able to number one be such a good storyteller to take events and and twist them slightly so you're able to write about them but still get that um feeling of of release without being able to talk about it how difficult was that i think uh one of the key things you need to do in write writing is this is not an after action report right <laughs> it's it's a fictional novel and 
uh, I was very lucky early on that I found um, a mentorship, essentially a six month mentorship. I joined up with a gentleman named Jerry Jenkins, who's like 23 times New York bestseller. Uh, he wrote um, a uh, Christian series called the Left Behind Books. And uh, he's right down in Colorado Springs. I'm just about an hour north, closer to Denver. Um, and I hooked up with him. And, you know, he's like, it, the idea of getting the reader's imagination to work, you don't have to write everything. Like uh, Brad Taylor says, you know, the first time you talk about, you know, Pike Logan's or, or in my case, Lance Bearwolf's pistol, I can say it's a Browning high power because he's an old guy and he loves it. You know, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't have a six, three, sixty-five, whatever. But I don't have to say that every time, right? Everybody now knows he's got that pistol to say Drew's pistol. Or you don't have to get in every scene, you don't have to get so detailed or so gory, right? Um, like in, in the book, you, you probably remember there's a scene where he's in a warehouse, Lance is, and he draws out his Randall Model 18. Well, if people go look up a Randall Model 18, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big old fighting knife, survival knife. It was made to cut your way out of uh, Huey helicopters and things like that in Vietnam. But I talk about how he makes use of the knife and and takes the subject down um but i'm not all about you know uh all the gory details of the scene so ignite i think the term is ignite your reader's imagination and so that that gives me license to talk about things i mean i know things about technology uh, in the first book i inserted a piece of technology that never went on an airplane and wasn't exactly ready in 1998 at the time of the book, but it, it helps in the story and it helps my guy, you know, it helps Kennedy uh, manipulate the grid coordinates of where Lance might or might not be on the <laughs> wrong side of the Mexican border. So um, I'm able to do those kind of things and, and have fun with it without getting into classified. It's interesting when that first book went through the, they call it Dopser, the review, the DOD review, um, they didn't like my use of some terminology about some tier one units. It's in the news. It's in the paper. If you're a Navy SEAL, oh, you can say that. If you're a, if you're a former operator uh, from the unit, you can say that. But somehow I can't say that. So, <laughs> you know, I had to change JSOC to Joint Special Missions Unit instead of JSOC and stuff like that. And so, uh, but other than that, um, technology makes it a lot of fun uh, without getting into, um, you know, some people are starting to step into having AI either as the whole core of the book or as an element of the book. And I think I think that's cool. Uh, my books, my my second book, uh, which comes out in August, is actually now we've moved from 98 to 2003 because we're in Afghanistan. But so. Thank God I don't have to remember what technology we had in 98, <laughs> only 20 years old technology versus, you know, whatever. So it is it is fun to be able to talk around it. Um, I'm a lot like I heard Brad Taylor say the other day that um, he will stay away from certain technologies or capabilities because he knows they might be in use. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. If if. Um, 
something is talked about in Wired magazine or you know some other technology forum, I'm I'm happy to talk about it. Um, you know, uh, the fact that the fact that I was a cybersecurity guy and everybody carries a cell phone is like, oh, thank you, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. So um, when when the first book came out, uh, were you nervous of how it was going to be received? Because it's been received very well. It's had some outstanding reviews. With it being your first one, were were there nerves involved, or you know, you seem a very cool, calm, collective character, and like you were saying, any bad review, you, you'd take it on the chin and, and perhaps you know adapt uh, for, for your next one. Um, so what was going through your mind as that was coming to the release date of the first book? Well, uh, quite a few things. So number one is all the things I was learning up to the published date about the, the industry. And my publisher, Force Poseidon, is a, is a small publisher, but um, it's a traditional publishing house and, and learning, of, you know, just starting to see things about KDP and Ingram Spark and how Ingram Spark if you have it in that format is not is not ebook but it has 40,000 other retailers so just by going with Ingram Spark you know technically anybody at Target Walmart uh you know Sainsbury you know whoever could order my book online and and so um there was a lot of interesting sort of the details of the business that were interesting to see and then it was like uh, I was kept sort of telling myself, look, this is your debut novel, right? It's, it's, uh, you, I queried before I went with Forge Poseidon. And I think the problem was that, that, um, I wanted to write about the cartels when the cartels weren't that interesting to publishers. Now they, they, of course, you've seen all the, the, you know, the TV shows and the Netflix series on the cartels and Escobar and, you know, uh, El Pagino and everybody else. But uh, uh, so, you know, I, I personally, I was writing to get that story out. I wasn't writing for the market, which, you know, everybody says is a bad choice to try and write for the market. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I, I, I was like, I wonder how many of my friends are going to call me up on on different things I messed up, you know, from a technology or from a weapon standpoint or something. Um, but I was not I was not too nervous because I just thought this is my first time, you know, it's going to be as bad as some, somebody thinks or as good as somebody thinks. And I got lucky and uh, a few people think that uh, uh, the first book was pretty good. Um, I'm very lucky that. Uh, uh, a lot of folks are thinking the second book's better. It's got more character development. It's a broader story. Uh, even uh, retired Brigadier General uh, A.J. Tata has given me a, a blurb on the book, which is amazing. And uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm hoping yours gets to you pretty soon through <laughs> the uh, whole U.S. mail customs process. I'm sorry I wasn't there. Oh, that's quite right. It, it's usually uh, Langley in our country that seems to be where uh, hold up things coming from the US. I've uh, I've experienced yeah. that a time or two. But yeah. when when did the aspiration for a second book come out? Um, was there always going to be a second book and a follow up and, and, and perhaps a series? Yeah, I I had always thought in terms of series, 
And actually, when I signed with Force Poseidon, um, the publisher was very honest with me and said he had a backlog. So it'd probably be about a year before I'd see my book out. And so it came out last June 14th, Army Day, and uh, a great day in, 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 in American history. <laughs> uh, but uh, the uh, um, right away, I went to writing the second book. And so when it came time to pull it out, let's just say it wasn't a rewrite. It was a heavy edit to get it up to par because I'd learned so much more about writing in the process since then. So, you know, from 19 to, to uh, you know, the, the end of 22 uh, conferences, that, that mentorship with Jerry Jenkins, uh, different things like that, you know, you know, make sure people know where you're at, know what time it is, is the sky blue, what's the smells like, all those kind of things that give people, get people into a scene and sticking with the character in the scene, you know, because uh, Jerry would often say, Steve, we're writing a book, not a screenplay. So you just can't have people talking and stuff, you know, things like that. So all that learning went back into the edit of the second book. And I actually have a third book done, which will need a similar edit because I wrote that one right after it. And I'm about 60,000 words through a fourth Lance Bear novel. And um, so lots of opportunity for a series since I'm going like three years at a time to catch up to, to now. Um, and you know, the nice thing is, is the second book's in 2003 and, you know, we still don't have El Chapo is a neighbor of mine now down in, he's in Florence, uh, Colorado at the Supermax. So I don't go see him very often. Uh, they won't let me actually, <laughs> <laughs> but I have a lot of room to write for the series and I enjoy it. It's, um, you know, there's not there's creating a fictional military unit that is focused on the war on drugs has given me a lot of license. I get to include different agencies, different technologies, you know, best of uh, they're sort of semi supported. Uh, uh, Mr. Kennedy, his his first buddy that he brought into the idea of what he was doing um, is is, is uh, his his position is paid for by the CIA. So. Uh, you know, he is connected in, in different ways. So they get the, the best and the, the worst of being multi, multi-agency. It seems to be very good uh, currently for, for veterans in, in the writing community, taking, for example, Jack Carr, whose series of books has been turned into a, a Netflix series. What would be the chances of perhaps somewhere down the line we'll be seeing you follow suit and perhaps have these put into uh, an actual screenplay. Would that be something you'd want? Oh, absolutely. And I have no ego about if they change it, right? If you've read The Gray Man, you, you, you see the differences in how they sort of mission impossible, the Gray Man, you know, in the movie. And and I love Mark's, Mark's um, uh, sort of stance on that is that, yeah, you know, they bought the rights to it. It's, you know, you know, they get to do it. Some, you know, some devout gray man customers were screaming a bit about, you know, what they did to the gray man. But, you know, I thought it was a, I thought it was a great fun movie. So yeah, I'd love, I'd love, you know, I'm always open for that uh, opportunity. I've also uh, recently, I bought the copy of the backdraft. Backdraft is it called the software that helps you format for a screenplay. Hmm. So I've got an idea about a different series 
uh, with a female protagonist who's deaf. And uh, in that series, she's uh, a psychologist at the CIA and she gets teamed up with one of her, let's say, less than stable patients and she has to go do a mission. She's been fighting to be able to get into the field, but they won't let her go because she she's deaf and she wears an implant. Um, and finally, she gets teamed up with one of her patients who's not real stable and they have to go on a mission. So um, I might be working on that with some other folks on a, a screenplay here in, in the next couple of months. So we'll see how that goes. Where where did the concept for that come up from? Because to be fair, that, that sounds like something I'd quite enjoy watching the, the premise of that. Is, is that something that... If you, if you can say, was that from personal experience that, or, you know, from something that somebody's told you, or is that just straight out of the, the writer's mind? Uh, combination. I've, I've seen, and I know, um, some, uh, really, um, talented, smart female agents of different agencies. And of course, seen, seen some very strong, uh, females in the military. Um, and then um, partially the writer's mind is like, how can I make this person different? Um, so for example, if you take a, this is how my mind works. So somebody's got a cochlear implant. So they've got the implant, the, 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 the various devices into their ear and their brainstem, things like that from the implant. And then they wear, you know, essentially a, a hearing aid, a modified hearing aid that connects into it, things like that. Turns out that one of the companies that leads that technology is right here, like 30 minutes from my house. So I started checking them out. Then I, I thought, wait a minute, what if somebody took Google glasses and we upscaled the glasses? So they're now they're a satellite transceiver. And my protagonist, uh, Janet Winner, can get images red for blue forest tracker know where the good guys the bad guy she can get all this intel via her glasses and they're part of her transceiver and so that's where my techie brain goes to i i swear i don't do drugs i just think of these things <laughs> and uh start connecting the tech dots but i then i want to ground it in it in a story that that has value and so the real basis of the story is the struggle that disabled challenge people have you know, in, in the case of the agency, and, and this is not, I don't know, this is real life in the CIA, but often in life, challenged disabled people will get all these accolades, win all these awards, but not allowed to be go downrange, right? Because for somehow downrange is different, or, you know, they, they might fail. Well, the mission might fail if they're not there. So I explore, that's really what the exploration is about, about the exploration of challenge disabled people and their and their value um and i do it through a a female protagonist and she is not she's not uh anybody you've seen on tv or you know in movies uh um she's not superwoman uh you know she's she's smart um and she's athletic but she is not she's not the gray man <laughs> she's not you know uh, that kind of thing and so i'm trying to keep it in, in, in a realistic vein that people will appreciate. And so, yeah, um, 
I, I oftentimes can get lost in research and I'll find something and it's like, oh, if I connect these three dots, maybe I could do something. And there's even a second book I'm thinking about where uh, uh, the bad guys are making use of something that's around us every day to attack us. And so. Yeah. It seems to me that you've got a, uh, a pool of uh, ideas <laughs> ready to, uh, to pluck out of the bag, which is absolutely brilliant. We do seem to be in a very good time, a very good place for, for veterans at the moment, especially in the United States. What's your perspective of that when it comes to uh, foundations, veteran startups, um, authors? Is it as good as what we believe it is here in the UK when we're looking across the pond to the US? Yeah, man, if we, we get into a long discussion about the VA, good and bad, um, my wife was married to uh, a gentleman who had been in the Air Force before, and they got amazing help um, and and services from the VA uh, as as he was passing on to the end of his life. Um, but she also carried around a big binder of every piece of paper, right? She was prepared kind of thing. I know friends back when I lived in you know, back east who uh, really struggled to get services and things from the VA. Um, but there are many associations that help. Um, I think, uh, you know, if, if you're a military writer, for example, uh, there are a whole lot of us. I mean, um, right. I was, I was, uh, in the army, but, uh, came from this Navy merchant Marine family. It goes all the way back to, to, uh, Southern England and, uh, Stratton on Avon down there and such. And, and Jeff Wilson. I was able to talk to Jeff Wilson and he gave me great guidance, you know, and I hate to say it, but I got great guidance from a Navy guy, you know, it's sort of strange, but uh, he's really helped me through my career. And that's what you'll find. If you're an aspiring writer, there's so many different ways to go, things to learn. I'm part of Military Writers uh, Society of America um, uh, and uh, just a lot of folks out there willing to help. Uh, you know, and point you in the right direction and give you give you ideas, things to learn. Um, so that in on the writer side, that's great. I think on the on the on the you know, once you're a civilian, once you're out, you've got to find once again, one of the big things you have to do as you leave is you've got to find your tribe because you're leaving your team, your tribe, your people. Maybe you don't like all of them. Maybe the, the lieutenant colonel's, uh, you know, a three you know, a four letter word or whatever. But now that you're getting out, you've got to find your new tribe. And, you know, and that can start at home. It can start whatever your religion is and your faith-based, you know, environment. But then, and then find like people. And sometimes you can find that through the different, you know, um, organizations here in the States. Um, uh, you know, um, there are organizations that are, you know, tend to serve the older, you know, World War II, Korea, Vietnam crowd. And there are new, newer organizations that support, uh, you know, folks that uh, went to war in the GWAT, you know, and or maybe in their 30s and 40s, not 60s, going on 70 like me, right? Um, but they're all out. There's a lot of them out there. Um, and, uh, you know, so number one thing to do, I think, is 
is while you're making that transition, making sure you can take your specialties and the things you've learned in your experience and apply them into your resume, into hunting for a job and all that, you still got to find that team, um, that tribe, um, and, and, and have that circle of support that you had when you were in the military. With the, the war in Afghanistan at an end, uh, with having the U.S. forces withdraw and the coalition withdraw, do you think we're, we're going to be coming to a point of, a, or, or are we in, the point of an epidemic of mental health crisis within veterans and, and people who, who served during that time? I think, yeah, I think um, if somebody already had problems, identified or unidentified, I don't think that helped, right? It was like, what have you, you know, you just devalued my service kind of idea. Um, and, and so I think, I think it's, we're in the middle of uh, a, a, a crisis around that. Um, you know, I don't know what the left and right limits of the term, term crisis is, but certainly it's, it's affected a lot of people. And a lot of people have, it, in my mind, it's caused a lot of people to say, you know, why should sort of give up on it? They gave up on me, you know, and they give up on the government kind of idea. Um, so it, it can be hard to lose your, your, um, space, so to speak, in, in, in the elected officials in, you know, when things just such bad decisions, right? We're, I love America, but we're so bad at international relations. I, I mean, you know, we, we get into things and then don't back our troops and, you know, do things like this, this pull out, right? When we could have said, look, Taliban, you know, yeah, you're here, but give us, Give us a month or six weeks to do an organized pullout. You stay out of the way and we won't kick your teeth in. You know, you just let's have a little mutual respect here. Keep your knuckle case, keep your knuckleheads away, your suicide bombers away. And and we'll do this in a much orderly uh, fashion than just all of a sudden going like, yeah, send in the 82nd, send in some Marines. Let's get out as many as we can. It was like. It was the worst neo operation I'd ever seen in my life. Um, besides the the routes the aircraft flew, I'm not sure what planning there was done. So, yeah, I, I think the the withdrawal probably hit a lot of service personnel and veterans very hard uh, after such a long time for for that hurried exit uh, from the country to to see the Taliban sort of regain places that they they lost brothers and sisters to to liberate it, it must have been incredibly hard for them um but again having isis as almost a, a common enemy for the coalition and the, the taliban that must give some relief to think that that isis was stomped out while the taliban sort of took over it to a certain respect yeah I'm not. Hmm. Yeah, that that's a tough one. We're still fighting them and their their radical, radical ideology. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of us, right? A lot of Americans look at the Taliban as having radical ideology. 
compared to the way we live here or, you know, in the, in the rest of the free world. But yeah, the Taliban, I mean, the ISIS is just way out there. Um, and we continue to fight them in mm. Syria and in other ways and things like that. So, um, yeah, that, that's a, that's a tough one for me. I don't have a, an informed way to speak to that at this point. That's fine. Um, you, you know, you mentioned Syria there. I don't think a lot of people uh, are probably fully aware that we are still engaged in uh, kinetic operations in Syria. Uh, I know the British military are, I know the US are, but it's not spoken about in the news. So I think that comes full circle again when the the news is used as as a, a weapon almost, uh, so to speak. If If it's not, well, from my perspective, if it's spoken about, in the media or you know it's put on an ad on facebook i always take it with a pinch of salt but when it's not in the news then that always raises my eyebrow a little bit and makes me want to to look at it that little bit more so when it comes to us fighting in syria i don't believe a lot of the general public are probably aware that we're still over there and doing some good absolutely i mean and and the russians are messing with our drones and things like that you know Really, the Russians are really pushing the envelope. I'm waiting for the, you know, America to spank back, so to speak, a punch back uh, in that space. And yeah, Syria, you know, uh, it's interesting. But the news meet the, the news outlets have have attention deficit. They get fatigue from how long has the Syrian civil war been going on, right? And of course, it was covered in the early days, and and I mean. That poor country and those poor people have been at war for a long time and they've been under, you know, Assad and his father's dictatorship for a long time. But even under the dictatorship, there was some level of stability and, you know, things going on. So, yeah, that but that idea that the, the, the media just sort of like, right, we don't we don't hear about. Darfur and Sudan, right? They, that's just that they get they get tired of the subject, or it's the same old really bad news. There's no shocking, shockingly new news, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, um, it just they they've lost me with that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, it, you know, it's been uh, it's been a, a thing over history, um, uh, you know, and and with the internet you'd think it would have become more prevalent, but people don't understand how many little wars and things are going on around the world all the time. I mean, as a unconventional warfare specialist, we used to, you know, uh, focus on that a lot and, and understand, you know, try and understand different parts of the world, wherever our assignment might be, you know, unit assignment might be that kind of thing. But man, there's hundreds of, shooting wars going on in different places around the world all the time, you know, and, and uh, yeah, those don't, those don't get covered. The, the gunfights and the war on, you know, the Venezuela Colombian border, you know, I endure in Sudan or occasionally now it's become the thing though, they will cover something in Africa as well because Wagner's there. And of course, Wagner's a hot topic, you know, and, and uh, what do you know? The, the leader of Wagner was back in Moscow greeting the African leaders, you know, alongside Putin, so to speak. Uh, he was not 
he was not shot in the head. He was not exiled to Belarus. Isn't that interesting? Again, it's exactly <laughs> what we're talking about, disinformation and, and using that as a weapon. Uh, I, I think when it comes to what the um, what Russia uh, puts out in the media is, is probably incredibly far from the truth and what's reported is used to spread disinformation to to give us an idea that they're you know they're weak in a certain area where they're probably not and you know much as you know we, we do back ukraine i would say perhaps their stories of success may be exaggerated to again spread disinformation to de uh demotivate any russians that are, are fighting them uh so again the media it's a very important tool when it comes to warfare these days. Absolutely. Yeah, that it's interesting. The patriotic uh, Ukrainian fight against the invaders sort of slowed down as it become a slugfest. And nobody's really, you know, there's nothing really to report other than it's a slugfest in Bakhmut or somewhere. Or, or, I apologize if I just destroyed that name, city name. But um, right. One of the things the Russians are really good at is defense. Even if their offense sucks and their supply lines messed up, they're really good at 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 defense, right? I mean, look, they you know they never gave up Stalingrad, yeah. you know things like that. So they got that they got that mindset. Uh, so I can I you know I'm sure the Ukrainians are probing, moving you know moving pieces around, trying to figure out what's going on. I heard that a general recently got let go on the front line. So yeah, let's see if they've got a, some chaos and leadership. Let's see if we can't punch through while they're, you know, their heads are turned the other way, trying to figure out who's in charge of these units. But uh, it'll be tough going because I can imagine, I mean, it's right. It reminds me of World War One. You've got the trenches, your trench lines, you know, and there's lots of room to maneuver. But when those, when there are Russians concentrated in places, man, they've, these trenches, you could tell the trenches weren't digging by hand, dig, dug by hand, right? They were backhoed out. They're perfectly square. They're very deep, you know, things like that. It's man, that's trench. I, I don't know what's harder because I've never experienced, experienced trench warfare versus versus urban warfare, but it's man, tough environment. And so, yeah, that you notice the different disinformation's coming slower, right? It's you know, it's not being piled on us so quickly. And um, with obviously that's been covered in the news is obviously China and Taiwan uh, having that huge naval military exercise around the island of Taiwan. Being under almost U.S. protection, so to speak, because of the technological ties that the, the two countries have. Is, is that something that the American people are quite wary of what's happening over there? Well, certainly, certainly people in the technology industry are worried, right? When, yeah. when so much of the technology is actually put yeah. together. I mean, can you imagine what Apple's thinking? Because everything about Apple's built over there, right? In some, some, some plant in China, um, or maybe not everything, but most stuff is. Um, and so the technology sector's got to be very wary of what's going on. But the average person's like, you know, I don't think they understand understand um what we do in taiwan and our relationship with like if we were to just turn off trading with china right um you know 
think of think of how bare the stores would get in a hurry, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there's this active competition, coopetition, something else. I'm not sure what the terminology is they're using today, um, but uh, you know, I can tell you, and I'll admit to this: I live in a retirement community, and you know, people. I don't hear people worried about China. They're worried about inflation here at home. Yeah. Americans, by and large, you know, I see, and it was interesting. I used to have a bit of an ego about this or sort of like look down on people who are worried about their, you know, uh, teachers association or school board or how much their water cost is and stuff. They just didn't have, you know, they don't have this international view. They don't get it. I used to feel that way when I was younger. Um, and uh, of course, like I say, working at the White House, traveling around the world didn't didn't mollify that at all. So, um, but when it comes down to it, most Americans are, I believe, been more isolationist and worried about here and how it affects me and my family than they are some grand scheme. It's like, why not let them have Taiwan, right? And by the way, give them Taiwan and get us a better break on the toaster or the a Samsung, that Samsung big refrigerator <laughs> with the screen on the front where I don't have to open the door because the camera will tell me what's in my refrigerator. It's like, a, yeah, uh, unfortunately, I think that uh, maybe I'm a bit pessimistic, but that's that's where I think we're at here as an American people. Um, so and the power of commerce. Oh, man. Yeah. Um. So the future for yourself, what what is that looking like? Well, um, like I say, here's here's the book for, it publishes on August 30th. So this one's coming out. And hopefully, like I say, your ARC gets through customs and you get to read a (laughs) copy of it. Um, And then... um, After that, it's it's keep writing. I am uh, my wife and I both love to travel, so uh, we had plans of. of, I've been all over Europe, but I've never been to Italy. But you know, we're not we're not uh, probably going to make it to Italy this year. Hopefully, it's cooler next year. Yeah. Um, My wife, when I said I was going to do this podcast with you, said immediately said, "Do we need to go to England to to film it?" (laughs) She loves to travel. So we're doing a bit more travel uh, around the States, uh, mostly um, this year. Um, uh, the nice thing is, is that I do use, wherever I go, I pick something up about, and all my memories of international travel, I pick up things about, you know, countries and stories and stuff like that, um, like, like other authors do. Uh, so it's travel, continue to write, and then... Uh, uh, enjoy, enjoy my grandson, my younger grandson. He's seven and he's already like five feet tall. He's ridiculous. He's going to be huge, but, uh, so having, having fun with him and stuff like that. So that's, that's the plan for the future. Um, you know, and, and hopefully I continue to evolve my writing and get better at the storytelling so that, uh, you know, I can, I can, um, I'm, I'm very much like other authors have said, I'm very respectful that, that readers take the time out of their life to read my book and read one of my books. And um, so hopefully I offer them some insight to something and or 
uh, value, entertainment value, because that's that's where I hope to be. So, and if a if a movie deal comes up, <laughs> hey, but I'll inv I'll invite you out, and we'll 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 get you on as an extra. <laughs> I would absolutely love that, and I'll hold you to that. There you are, go. You, are you going to um, still do the same sort of interaction uh, with your audience as you, with future books as you did for your second? Because you put up several choices for the cover. Uh, and allowed the readers to to help make your mind up of which which cover you were going to go for. Are you, do you plan on carrying that interaction with the audience? Oh, I, yes, I absolutely love it. Um, and 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 just to be frank, man, I love that picture with the dragon. And my publisher was probably right that we don't want to let make people think that my books about you know Game of Thrones. 2.0, you know, <laughs> or it's some kind of sci-fi book that, man, you know, so yeah, that's a lot of fun um, interacting with, uh, and and then the kind of giveaways I do, like uh, last year I had Mark uh, Elliott out for fishing in Colorado. Uh, he came out a little bit late, so actually it started snowing while we were, while we were trout fishing. <laughs> it's like, hey, you want to go back to the truck? Uh but uh, yeah, this year uh, having having folks out, so I enjoy that. It's 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 you know we call it Steve Squadron, but I really appreciate those folks folks that support me and and uh, help out. And then I also do do my part and make sure that part of what you know I, every signed book that I sell, I uh, a portion of that goes to the Special Operations Warrior Fund, and and uh, continue to give back to to the people that followed you know in the footsteps of me and the vietnam post-vietnam guys that uh continue to do the good work uh both here your country and the rest of the five eyes my good buddies in the five eyes so you've been the the first returning guest to come on so you've uh, set a bit of a precedence uh it's been brilliant once again speaking with you um like you say you you are truly a very good storyteller it's been brilliant speaking to you about a wide range of subjects uh, and especially listening to what's coming up in your in your books and your in your writing career so thank you very much for coming on the show again uh it's been an absolute pleasure and honor oh me too thank you so much dan and i hope to uh stay connected with you into the future and and the future success of your podcast thank you thank you very much indeed 